The following audio is from Cross Life Church in Tampa, Florida. We are a church that exists to help people find Christ, their place in the body, and their mission to the world. Our calling is to raise leaders and plant churches. So if you live in the Hudson area or near Wesley Chapel, you can also check us out at one of our other locations. For more information, visit us at crosslife.net. Good morning. So John chapter 5. You know, every time uh, I am uh, looking uh, at John, there's so much. And you wonder just kind of what to, what to dive into and what not to dive into. Uh, so in John chapter 5, this healing of this man at the pool of Bethesda, it's the second specific healing in John. And it's, if you're looking at John and he's talking about the signs to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, then this is the third of, and it depends, seven or eight signs that John highlights to bring people's attention that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah. And looking at it, the, remember the first miracle, changing water to wine, I mentioned last week that it's not real public, it's not just out there kind of the, just the disciples kind of was aware of it, the disciples and Jesus' mom. And then uh, the healing of the nobleman's son, that wasn't real publicized because Jesus spoke it, and then 20 miles away in Capernaum, it took place. But this third miracle in John, I'm seeing that it really brings uh, Jesus' ministry more out into the open where he reveals to the religious leaders, and again, as you read through John, when you hear the term written, and you see the Jews, it was specifically that term he used for the religious leaders of the day, not the Jewish people, but the religious leaders. And so we see that um, as he is um, ministry coming out the open, he reveals himself to these religious leaders about who he is and his purpose for coming. And this is also where we see uh, this uh, persecution and hatred really ramp up toward Jesus. And it just continues uh, to the end. And matter of fact, here it is this persecution and hatred to Jesus where it begins. And even right here, it begins to the point where they are trying to figure out a way just to kill him. I got to thinking, man, that's cancel culture, right? They don't like what Jesus is saying, so they persecute him. And they not only persecute him, but they're persecuting people that believe in him. They're cutting off people from coming into the temple. Man, this is, they're trying to silence people. They're trying to shut them up to the point that they decide, well, you know what, the best way really to solve this, I just, we're just going to kill that guy. Man, that just... When you really kind of pause for a minute to just to think the, the animosity that these people had toward Jesus. And we're going to kind of get into that a little bit about how that just ramped up. And so um, what happens then at that point is that Jesus just begins to defend himself and he points to the Jews concerning their lack of understanding of the scriptures, which is really makes them mad. 
So I kind of see three big pieces here in John chapter 5. And if you have, I think it's in the, my, it's in the NIV, uh, you can see that it shows that the first heading over the first 14 verses about, is about the healing of this man at the pool. The next section of verses talk about life through the sun, and then the following three are the testimonies about who Jesus is. And then Jesus pointing these Jews uh, back to the scriptures because these are the these are what they embrace, and he's saying, "What you embrace talks about me." And so they are not. Uh, again, this is where it really begins and it really ramps up because Jesus is just saying, look, this is who I am, this is what I'm about, this is why I come, and this is why you don't understand because you don't even believe what you embrace. And so it's just really a, 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 really a hard friction in my mind. So a few things to think about when we're looking at this um, in John chapter 15 where this man, Jesus, goes to a place, verse 2 of chapter 5, to a pool which is called Bethesda. And it says that there were a great number of disabled people that were there, and they used to lie there, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And it says one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Uh, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he was, had, had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? And he said, sir, well, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes in ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, walk away. And once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and he walked away. Now, a few things just maybe to, to consider as we're looking here is Jesus goes specifically to this place. And Jesus selects this individual specifically uh, to bring healing to. And again, I think it's good for us just to kind of in our mind's eye kind of drop into the scene. Um, I mean, this is... Uh, there are a multitude of people there of the sick and the lame. They're, and they're, they're laying all around. So I, I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking, did, they, did, did people take them there every morning? And then they, then they were there during the course of a day, and then everybody leave at night? Were they there 24-7? It would have been, I don't know, just not real clean situation. It would have been just, man, just a, a real dire situation for everyone that's there. It would have been a, a I, I don't know, for me it would have been like a depressing place to be and to walk through and to hang out at. And to think that all of them were there waiting for a miracle. Now, I jumped into this in a lot of different ways, and there's way too much speculation about this pool and if it was mineral water that bubbled up or there was actually angels that stirred the water. You can decide for yourself. But Jesus, it's interesting, Jesus doesn't even deal with any of that. He just like, when the guy's explaining it, Jesus doesn't say anything. He passes right by all those things. And so... 
this man, along with everyone else that were there, they were counting on, their hope was, that what would happen is for their only hope. Apparently, they're there. So it seems like maybe their only hope for changing their situation, their dire situation, is that what would happen is that when the waters would stir, they could get to the pool first. And I'm just thinking, who's the person that's most likely to get into the water first? Probably the one that's least sick, right? And so the one that was... one. Okay, so... Jesus goes to somebody who has like a slim to none chance. That's the one that he goes to. Probably the one that was in, one of the ones that was in the most dire situation. He, go, he goes to that one. You know, in my mind, the water stirs the person that's probably nearest, that can just kind of roll over and fall in, or the person that really is the healthiest of them maybe those would have a greater chance of getting in the water. And this, it all makes sense uh, what, to me what John is getting at in the picture that he's painting. So you kind of got this survival of the fittest situation almost. And so here's a thought. So this man's there. Jesus approaches this man, and he asks him, to me, a silly question. Do you want to be healed? And instead of the guy responding with just a simple yes, he goes into this explanation. You know, every, of, course every, of course he wants healed. Everyone there wants healed. So why didn't the guy, why did Jesus ask, do you want to be healed? And why didn't the guy just say yes? So the, this guy goes into this uh, and explains to Jesus about his impossible situation. This, this is just kind of how I'm all reading this. So, you know, instead of just saying yes, he's really trying to tell Jesus about his impossible situation of his ailment that he has and his inability, his inability to get into the water because he had no one to help him in. And so... No discussion about anything. What does Jesus do? He just tells him, hey, you just need to get up, take your mat, and walk. And at once the man was healed. Now, John is John brings in a lot of detail uh, into each of these signs. And to me, uh, we got to really kind of drop ourselves into culture, and we got to kind of understand this uh, background. We need to understand history. We need to understand culture a lot when we get into some of these uh, specifics because they mean a lot. And so the idea of him naming this pool, and he's going to this place, this pool that is called Bethesda. And Bethesda means house of mercy. And now, when I, to me, here's this third miracle, here's this third sign. And the third sign to me is reflecting the mercy of God toward humanity in dire situation. And so, 
when you think about it, the, the word mercy in our Bible is a kindness or goodwill toward the miserable and afflicted joined with a desire to help them. And it also carries this thought that those who receive it did nothing to deserve it. So this big idea of mercy. And also in the Bible, mercy is, uh, relates to forgiveness or withholding punishment. And so we know probably the greatest example of mercy is God the Father showed mercy on us when he sacrificed his son Jesus on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, which we didn't deserve his mercy. We didn't deserve his forgiveness. So Jesus steps in uh, to this situation and he just extends mercy in the midst of this man's dire situation, just like God the Father has stepped in in the midst of man's dire situation to bring rescue, to bring healing to humanity. Uh, in First Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy... He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And so Jesus walks in, extends mercy to this man, brings healing to this man, and the man gets up and he leaves. When he leaves, in verse 10, he's confronted by the Jews because he's carrying his mat, and as we know from the Scripture, it says that it was on the Sabbath that this happened. And so they confront the man. They say, hey, this is, what are you doing carrying your mat? That's like unlawful to do on the Sabbath. What are you doing? And he says, well, the guy that healed me, uh, he told me to do it. Well, who is that man? I, I don't know who that guy is. And so what's interesting to me is there's no, in, in this whole scenario, there's no indication of Jesus revealing himself to the man who he is. There's no indication of this man, uh, in this man responding that he even knew who Jesus was, what he was about. There's no mention of repentance. There's no mention of faith. That John just like leaves all that out. You know, so, so why, what's the deal? Why is he, why did he leave it all out? And again, I think it, to me, it falls back to mercy. This guy didn't even deserve it, didn't even have it coming, yet God extended it to him. Him being very unaware of really who Jesus was and what really happened to him and the gift that he received and from whom he received it. So I think it kind of, to me, it kind of pushes that a little bit more. I mean, this is very different than the second uh, specified miracle that John talked about as a sign with the Roman official son. Because... He knew who Jesus was because he heard of him, so he traveled from Capernaum to there 20 miles. He keeps asking Jesus to heal his son because he had heard that he could. He had heard of who he said he was. And then when the healing does occur, he believed and his whole family believed. So two different 
situations here. It's kind of interesting. I don't really know. Uh, I'm, one of the things that crossed my mind is that, so here's this Roman official. He's probably not a Jew. He's probably a Gentile of some sort. He had a greater understanding than this man, possibly a Jew at the pool of Bethesda that Jesus came to. You know, he came to his own. His own received him not. He didn't even, he wasn't even aware. That's all speculative, but in my mind, I'm thinking John is painting a picture, leaving out a lot of details for some reasons. And so, when he is healed, the only thing that we know about from his... um, encounter with Jesus is that he's healed and when he leaves the the official the officials conf- these Jews confront him and the man says I don't know who it is and then he leaves he goes then to the temple now it's interesting that Jesus heals this guy but then he goes back finds him at the temple and he says this in verse 14 See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. So it seems as though this guy, there was this sin in this guy's life. And it seems as though this guy had never let go of that. There was something in this guy's life that, w- that had derailed him. In, in, the, in the scriptures here, it seems that because of this man's sin, this sickness came on him. It's what it seems like. Now, you can't really go overboard here and think every time anybody's sick or anything goes wrong that they're disobedient, they're unfaithful. You can't really go there, but for some reason, John is pointing all that out. Could he have left it out? Yeah, there's, I mean, it seems like he left a whole bunch of stuff out in this whole thing, but he's writing these things. And so, Thinking about this, this man is in sin, and Jesus goes, and he heals him. Although he's in sin, Jesus goes to where he is, and he heals the man. Doesn't explain who he is, doesn't try to get him to believe in him and who he is. He just extends mercy to the man. And so, in spite of his sin, Jesus heals him. But then Jesus finds him again in the temple because he he finds him and he lets him know that he knows about his sin. And he lets him know that he needs to stop it. And he says, you need to stop it, otherwise something more may come upon you. So I'm just... You know, that's some kind of some hard words. That's, for us, some kind of some things that we maybe need to process. Uh, just think about our own life as believers and just the idea of salvation and how we've been set free from our sin. But we need to be careful about how we live. Ephesians chapter, Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, verse 3, this is the truth of what God was did, therefore... This is how we ought to live. And so we see this warning that Jesus gives this man. Any thoughts or comments about any of this to this point? That the, you know, there, there's no coincidence. It, Jesus is purposeful. 
you know, just like we talked about when he went to Samaria, went out of his way to Samaria to go see the woman and then head back. <coughs> I think this is purposeful too. Just another, I'm going to go, I'm going to this pool um, and everything about it. The man with, with no faith, you know, everywhere else in the Bible is, your faith has healed you. You know, your faith has done this, your faith yeah, has done that. Yeah, his faith was in the stirring of the water. Right. And, right, he's focused on just getting to the water. Maybe he's thinking Jesus is going to pick him up and throw him in the water when it starts bubbling. Right? He has no idea. Um, but the great mercy of God to just say, you know, I'm going to give, I'm going to show mercy on you even though you have no idea who I am. And then purposefully, again, I think, uh, I don't think it's, there's no coincidence, right? is that Jesus goes to the temple, probably seeking him out. Just to say, and by the way, <laughs> mm -hmm. sin no more. Otherwise, I don't think he's talking about his life. He's talking about his afterlife, you know? Mm. Sin no more, or you end up... Yeah, what's the worst thing, you know, 38 years on, right. in this dire situation? It's just, I, I think there's, it's, it's awesome, you know, purpose, and then it's also a lesson that he gets into with the Pharisees on the Sabbath. He finally gets to that discussion later on and says, if this happens on the Sabbath, what do you do? Mm -hmm. What would God do? The mercy of God, you know? Mm -hmm. so. Someone else? Thoughts? Tom? Oh, I got it. Oh, thanks. Got to get you on record. So, kind of piggybacking on that last observation about being that particular Sabbath, and, you know, we're looking at this story from Jesus' perspective and his years of ministry, but if you think of this guy, the, the invalid's perspective, he'd been sitting there for 38 years. And, you know, in, in our life, you know, if, if my coffee pot doesn't boil within the first minute, I get impatient. Um, you know, those Poor 38 Rose years Mary. from him, you know, Jesus could have come along and healed him the day before, and he would have been, or 37 years earlier before he got, mm. it, so it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, we know that the, God works all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose, and over those 38 years, God had been doing something, and it was important in that guy's life that it happened then, 38 years, and and Sabbaths later. Mm. Yeah, he could have done it a day before. Anyone else? Is um, what, you know, from the Pharisees' perspective is if the Sabbath, nothing was supposed to be done healing, why did the water turn on the Sabbath? Mm. <laughs> right? They couldn't control, that's God, right? To the to the Pharisees, his his offense is not that he got healed. His offense is that he picked up his mat and he walked with it. Well, they talk about he he talks about his healing to them, and they fixate on the mat, him carrying his mat. Yeah, they don't see they the don't, good. They don't even they don't even reply to him when he talks about him being healed. The man that healed me told me to pick up my mat. Well, who's this that told you to do that? Like, it's not about the healing to them. Yeah, I think a lot of times, you know, there's a lot that's going on that's not written, 
But what is written is purposeful, if we understand that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And again, it's not necessarily that John brought this out, but if he's inspired by the Spirit of God, it's the Father that is wanting him to write these things, specifically these things. So this guy, he gets confronted by the Jews. He goes to the temple. Jesus confronts him. And then what happens, beginning in verse 16, that next section, my heading says, Life Through the Son. And it says, so because of Jesus healing this man on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. So what happens is the guy gets healed. He, Jesus comes to the temple, talks to him. The man leaves from there. It does, again, so he doesn't, there's no comment that the man believed Jesus, of who he was, that he was Messiah, that doesn't talk about any faith toward God, that's not there. But what he does is he gets up and he goes back to the Pharisees to tell the Pharisees who Jesus was. And so now they got a target, and it's Jesus. And so they, they, they find him. How else, you, you got to think in the storyline, if ne- they didn't know who healed this man and told him to do what he did, they don't know who this man was that broke the Sabbath. Once they found out, it says they began to persecute Jesus because once they found out who he is, they went to him and they began to persecute him. And I love it because in verse 17, depending on translation, I don't know if it's NIV here that I have. Let me just see here if it is. Uh, no, I was reading through, I can't remember what translation I was in, but it says this in verse 17, in his defense. So they're persecuting him. And so basically in his defense, Jesus says to them, look, my father is always at work to this very day. And I am working too. And so you get to thinking, how is this processing to these Pharisees, which we'll find out in the next verse, but here the reality is that God is at work. So Jesus said, my father is working and, and, and I'm working too. Uh, and in general sense, we know that God is working to maintain his creation and to bring about his plans and purposes, right? And this very specific sense in which he works is that he has been working and he is at work from the time of creation to bring about the redemption of humanity. And basically, Jesus tells them, look, mere men cannot contribute to this work uh, because this is God's work. And so when Jesus tells him that the Father's doing the work and I am doing this work, uh, here he is saying to them who he is, which they don't like at all. And I think it was Doug and uh, we were talking in Psalms 121 uh, about how God is always at work. What was that? What's that? What verse is that in Psalms 121? Actually, I was looking at his relative to Christ. He's, you know, everything is the Father in heaven, right? So he says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He watches over you, will not slumber, right? So he's never slumbering. 
Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So he's always working, right? Um, again, to me, I think it's funny that, you know, why the Pharisees wouldn't be like before this. If somebody rolled into the pool or got into the pool on the Sabbath before, they wouldn't be like, hey, whoa, you know, this place should be closed on the Sabbath, right? Because uh, they're so particular about things. So verse 18 says, so, so the Jews grasp what Jesus was telling him, that he's the son of God. Because in verse 18 it says, for this reason they tried all the more to kill him. And it says that not only was he breaking the Sabbath, and let me just qualify that, their Sabbath rules, he was breaking their Sabbath rules, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So once it's like the cat's out of the bag, Jesus has been talking, all the stuff that Jesus had been doing was alluding to who he was. He had told a few people who he was, specifically he told the woman at the well that he was Messiah. Now, now who Jesus is is really coming in, his ministry is really coming into public form. It's really, he's answering questions to these Jews more specifically, and when he does, it just causes a greater divide and a greater animosity. So then Jesus goes on to tell them in verse 19, he said, look, I'm going to tell you the truth. The Son of Man can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Verse 21, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he pleases. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Verse 23, so that the honor that belongs to the Father, he now shares with his Son. So if you, if you refuse to honor the Son, you are refusing to honor the Father who sent him. Verse 24, for truly, truly, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed from death to life. So these verses, they, Jesus, they confront him. Jesus says, uh, look, this is who I am. When that happens, they resent him. And he just cuts right to the chase and says, you need to know something. You need to know who I am. You need to know the honor that the Father's given me. You need to know because you don't honor me, you're not honoring the Father. And you need to know that I'm the one that he has given judgment to. I'm the one that will give life. And that is not what they wanted to hear at all. Any thoughts? David? <laughs> I got a half a thought. Yeah, who told you you could break our rules? 
Demonizing them more than what? Than their pettiness. Yeah. In one sense, but in the other sense, you know, they decided, you know what, um, their pettiness intensified, right? <laughs> Aaron's up here, he says he ratted him out. Yeah, so we don't, right? We don't know what is going on. There's, there's a storyline that, uh, that we may never know about. But you would have thought the guy would have been grateful. Who are you? Jesus, you're the Messiah. And then there would have been a further dialogue, but there was no further dialogue. Interesting. So now what happens is there's this confrontation. Jesus just tells them who they are, who, who he is. They hated the fact that he is calling himself equal with God. And then John chapter 5, verses 31 through 38, go into a series of testimonies where Jesus is just emphasizing to them who should know the Scriptures, who have embraced the Scriptures, should know about all these, the signs and the testimonies that are taking place concerning him. So we see that in, in, in here, uh, let me see, did I skip something here? Um, yeah, so in these should have been enough to convince the Jews of who Jesus was. And in verse 31, he says, Jesus is saying, look, I, I am not even testifying about myself because if I do, my testimony is not valid. What the law say uh, is your, it is a testimony by two or three witnesses. It shall be confirmed. So he says, but there is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. Verse 33 now, you have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. In other words, you had your guys go to John, and who are you, and that whole scenario, because I'm the one that's calling in the will, a voice in the wilderness to make way for the Lord. So there's John's testimony, and it says, and Jesus said, well, it's not that really I accept that human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. See, John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. So he's kind of, in my mind, he's digging at him. He's going, whoa, wait a minute. I'm not testifying about myself. There's someone else, and it was John, even John's human testimony. And you embraced that testimony. You believed it until it wasn't what you thought it was, until you didn't like it, until you learned more about it, and then you resented that. Then he goes on and he says, verse 36, he says, Now I have a weightier, I have a testimony that is weightier than that of John. For the very word that the Father has given me 
to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. So Jesus is saying the works that he's doing should testify. And again, John is bringing out these signs that prove who Jesus is. When Messiah comes, these are the things that Messiah will do. I was curious, um, your translations for uh, verse 36, the NIV says, I have testimony, testimony weightier than that of John. What's another word? And what, is there another word you have in your translation? Greater than. Okay. So I have a testimony that is even greater than John. And what the testimony is that greater is John is the works that I'm doing. You, sh you should know by what I'm doing. Here, here, here's a, a thought that I had had. So, you know, here we are, we're believers, and we've been believers for a long time, and sometimes we, uh, we kind of wane on the idea of the power of who Jesus is and the supernatural ability that God has, the movement of the Spirit of God in individuals' lives, and yet what happens when you see someone that's a sinner and they come to faith, they receive Christ, and their life has changed? You see that work. That work is this great work that, that proves to us and attests to us that he is who he said he is. And he's telling these Jews, you're seeing it all around you and you should be believing. And you're not. And then he goes on to say, verse 37, and the Father also who sent me has testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form nor does word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one who sent me. You're just, you resist. And this is this next verse I love. It says, you know what? You diligently study. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. So what hits your mind when he's saying to them, you know, these scriptures that you diligently study, you think that through them you possess life. Any thoughts about that? Keith? I thought you quit running the mic. Got, you got a little rest? Good man. Um, but, I mean, you, you can read anything. In, in this case, you know, the scriptures, you can read it and know it inside and out. But unless you believe with your heart, right, put faith in it, then you're not going to be able to understand it. Because after all, Jesus says that you know me because the Father has told you. So when the Spirit of God enters into a man after he believes and has faith in Christ, it helps him to decipher what the scriptures mean. And one little side note, I was back there chasing a kid. This is interesting. This is one of the few times in the Bible where somebody, and I could be wrong, somebody's healed who doesn't even know Jesus or have faith in him. Because he was just waiting to get in the pool. Jesus mm -hmm. has simply said, hey, what do you want? He said, I want to be healed. He says, take a few mat and leave. But yet he didn't know who Jesus was. So I find that kind of interesting that, and I'm just something wrong, his faith seemed to be in the water in the pool, but not in Jesus. But yet God healed him without him having faith, which he can absolutely do that. But usually people put their faith in Christ. Like the centurion and different ones that come to see him, they have faith that Christ can do that just by speaking the word. 
But this guy, interestingly, he just got up and walked away after God healed him. So. I, think, uh, I think the Father shows us, shows everyone mercy at times that they totally miss. They have no idea where, you know, where it came from. You know, oh, that was luck. Serendipitous. What a happy circumstance. Anyone else? Uh, Don? I think that Jesus deliberately did this on the Sabbath. If this had not happened on the Sabbath, um, the Pharisees would not have any cause to uh, take issue with the guy for picking up his mat and walking. But had it not happened on the Sabbath, it would not have given Jesus this opportunity to reveal himself, particularly in this way, uh, to the Pharisees and to the, the public at large. And so I think it was a deliberate choice on his part that he chose to do this on the Sabbath to, uh, to make the point and to uh, uh, promote not promote, that's not the right word, but anyway, to reveal. Uh, get his, his message out and to reveal himself, yeah, to the public. Yeah, and Jesus' primary ministry was not healing of the sick. His primary message was proclamation of the gospel. Uh, Aaron? Yeah, I think going off of um, that last comment, seems to me that the healing of the man was as much about the others at the pool that witnessed it as it was for the man that was actually healed. Um, you know, you think about the disciples, whoever they were that were there, that were watching, that ended up writing it down so that they could bear witness and testi testify about it to countless people through, through the writings of the scriptures, but also the people that were actually around at the pool that were also sick, that also witnessed somebody being healed by this man. So, I mean, and that's why your testimony is so important because even if you're not physically, if people aren't physically around when God does something in your life, if you share your testimony about what God did in your life, you're, you're helping push him. You're, you're, you're helping other people see him mm -hmm. through those circumstances who weren't really even there. So imagine in a time when things were passed along generation to generation more through spoken word than through writings. You know, they had the scriptures, but everything else in their culture that, that didn't revolve around the scriptures was passed along from generation to generation by word, through word of mouth. So all those people got to witness what they saw, the man being healed, and you don't think they talked about that mm. with other people that they saw, with family members, whoever brought them there every day and brought them back? Hmm. John, Don, you were talking about uh, the deliberateness of Jesus bringing this out. And remember when uh, the first miracle, the changing of the water to wine, Jesus said, my time is not yet. And it's almost like, okay, now it's time. And when his time did come, he went right to the source. He went right, right at these Jewish leaders 
uh, about who he was and what he'd come to do. And then it goes on. He, it, it's interesting because he really is confronting them hard in a way because he would say, look, you're, you're diligently uh, searching the scriptures and you can't even understand them because they speak about me. You don't even see it. And then verse 41, he pushes that even farther. He says, you know what? You don't even have the love of God in your heart. In our reading this week, it uh, wasn't today, it was yesterday, Matthew 23 was talking about the, these eight woes of the, of the religiously, the scribes and Pharisees, and he describes their hypocrisy, saying that their faith was only outwardly to be seen of men. Inwardly, it, they were dead on the inside. And Jesus is telling them, look, I, here's what I come to do. I come to bring life. I come to bring new life. And this is a story that is just continually being drawn out. And then in Matthew, or, and, and then in John, the last couple verses there, verses 45 through 47, he says, uh, oh, well, he, then he does also... Uh, in 44, condemns them for only seeking the praise of men. And then in verse 45, he says, he says, but do you not think I will accuse you before your father? Uh, uh, let's see. But do you not think I will accuse you before the father? Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you would believe Moses... You would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what I wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? So it's funny at the whole onset of this, uh, Jesus breaks their Sabbath rule. He's not following the rules. He's not, he's, they're, they're accusing Jesus of not following the rules, not believing uh, these uh, laws that are set up. And at the end, Jesus is basically saying, you know, that, it's like the pot calling the kettle black. Uh, you, you hang all your hope on Moses, and you don't even believe it. Because if you really search the Scriptures, if you believe them, you would know who I am. You're hanging all your hopes on what Moses has written, and you're not even believing what Moses has written. Because if you would believe that, then you would have believed me. And so he's really, really pushing it. And we're going to see as you go through the rest of John how that whole thing just begins to ramp up. Now, thinking about the miracle, so, you know, the first miracle, Jesus has come to bring transformation. Transformation from an old life to a new life. The second miracle, Jesus has come to bring healing and specifically, he goes, it was this nobleman's son healing to the world, to those outside of Judaism. The third miracle here, Jesus has come to bring mercy. Think about this. Jesus has come to bring mercy, but warns do not take advantage of that mercy. The next one we're going to get into in the next chapter is the feeding of the 5,000. In this fourth miracle, Jesus has come as the bread of life. Jesus is the promise of God. He is the one who brings sustenance to us now on our journey here till we reach the promised land. Some 
thought about the miracles that have transpired so far. Let's pray. Father, you are an amazing God. We appreciate you. Uh, when we walk through scriptures like this, it's, it's not always the hype. It's, it's the intentionality. It is so important that we see pieces. And so as I pray that you would just help us understand, Father, more and more how you extend your mercy to those that don't deserve what we think, and then yet if we look at our own life, we didn't deserve it, yet you gave it. And we're grateful for that. I'm asking that you would just kind of continue to cause us to be aware of who you are in our lives so we can cause others to be aware of who you are for them. I'm asking in Jesus' name. Amen.